0: Here we are on the first tee at the Monterey Pines golf course. Tamara Keith goes to her golf cart, picks up her number one wood, and approaches the pink ladies tee.
1: With a pink ladies ball, if you with,
0: with a pink ladies ball in her hand. She swings the club and nails the ball approximately 200 yards right down the middle of the fairway. Beautiful job, Tamara, and the crowd is going wild.
1: This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and that was my father-in-law, Bob, and my husband, Ira, providing a little color commentary for uh, this father-child golf outing. My dad's here, too. And that works because this edition of B-Side is all about dads. Woo, and my dad just hit a ball from a very rough patch right onto the green. Over, over a golf cart. Yes. Our first story comes from Renee Gattel. When she went away to college, which was a while ago now, her dad wanted to keep in touch. So he sent her a postcard. And then another, and another, and another.
2: Thank you, sir. Thank you.
3: That's my dad. He's a bus driver for the Orange County Transportation Authority. Thank you. He's been driving a bus for 24 years. My best friend from college once described Orange County as 90 miles of strip mall between San Diego and Los Angeles. I love Orange County, but she's right.
2: Bristol transfer the 57 Newport Transportation Center to the block at Orange, State College Boulevard and the Bray Mall.
3: I grew up in Huntington Beach, Surf City, USA. Definitely not a neighborhood for a bus driver's daughter. The middle school kids would taunt me by singing, The wheels on the bus go round and round. And for verse 2, Rene's dad on the bus says, Move on back. All this is by way of explaining something else about my dad, how he came to write me a postcard a day for every day I was in college. He sent me exactly 1,000.
2: It says, Dear Rene, which I always started with D-R, D period, R period, Y day, or yesterday, I took Taylor, which is my son, I took Taylor to see... Godzilla. Uh, Godzilla really tore up New York City. Actually, the military did trying to kill Godzilla. It was very corny, but Taylor loved it. I was, of course, rooting for Godzilla. They finally killed him when he got caught in the Brooklyn Bridge cables. Very sad. And then I always finished off my postcards with a heart. and Nobody would know what it was unless you knew, in fact, what they were, but they were supposed to be praying hands. Love and prayers, Dad.
3: When the first postcard came, I wasn't surprised or anything, just kinda glad to hear from home. The same with the second and third cards. I didn't even keep them, because I didn't know they'd one day be part of something bigger than themselves. Dad says it was somewhere around card 75 that he decided he would write me every day for all four years.
2: Well, you, you went off to Mount Holyoke, and of course it was in Massachusetts a long ways from home, and, and uh, I was a little worried about you being homesick which probably wasn't a problem at all for you at all. You were probably glad to be gone. But I I was very proud of you. I wanted you to succeed. And uh, I was happy for what you were doing and just a way of patting you on the back, that's all.
3: My dad is right. I was glad to be away from home. I come from a big family with lots of drama, and I wasn't in the least bit homesick. But that aside, I secretly loved the postcards, even the annoying ones.
2: Dear Renee, have you looked for a dentist? Have you called Social Security about your benefits? Have you gone to church anywhere? Have you thought about going to church on Sunday? What do you do on Sunday mornings? Have you made plans for Thanksgiving? Do you read these postcards? Why? Please respond to my questions, (laughs) or I'll be forced to commit postcard suicide. Love and prayers, Dad. Do you want some more ginger? Is this card a duplicate?
3: He sent me postcards of every sort. Postcards of California, Disneyland, beaches, the San Diego Zoo... Holiday postcards, postcards cut out in the shape of a slice of pizza. He sent me free postcards you pick up at bookstores, pre-stamped U.S. Postal Service cards, and makeshift postcards made out of photographs. Once he wrote me from a Mexican restaurant, and he smeared a chunk of salsa on the corner of the card. I was studying Arabic at Mount Holyoke College in western Massachusetts, and at the time I wore this really, really, really ugly army jacket that had big pockets in the front, and I'd go to the campus post office each day before lunch and check my mail, and I'd put the postcards in the pockets, and then I'd go to lunch, and at lunch everyone would ask me to read the day's postcard. And I would, usually reading each one aloud to a different audience several times a day. And not just to my friends, people I barely knew wanted me to read them my dad's postcards. Across campus, I came to be known as the postcard girl. Although my dad was writing to just me, he sort of became a fill-in for other kids' dads, it's like he was writing on behalf of all the dads of all the students at Mount Holyoke. And that's why people craved to hear even the bizarre things Dad would sometimes write.
2: March 13th, 98, 9.15 a.m., Mount Holyoke, card number 391. Dear Renee, have you considered the significance of having Friday the 13th during consecutive months? It would have to be February, March, number one. Number two, leap year would, would be present. So it won't happen in 2004. To the best of my calculations, there are the years 1903, 1914, 1925, 1931, 1942, 1953, 1959, 1970, 1981, 87, 898, 98, 09, 15, Do you see the pattern? Love and prayers Dad.
3: My dad says it took only minutes out of each day to write me the few lines, and he says it was kind of a challenge coming up with something new to say and looking for unusual postcards to send me. He wrote me from the same place every day his bus.
2: Oh, yeah. I would say 90% of them were on the bus, uh, either on my brakes or I rode a few of them at red lights. As I was driving, I would think of what to say at the next red light. Because you figure I'm at at the same red light three, four times a day. You know, the timing of the light. You know, you have uh, a minute, sometimes a minute and a half. And uh, I just try to make use of that minute and a half and and jot something down.
3: Is that at all dangerous?
2: I don't think so. I... (laughs) you know as soon as you take off you, you put down your pen and paper and, and, and get back to work but uh, actually I found that if I didn't work I would get behind on my postcards so it was very much a work-oriented um, event for me
3: you know speaking of it being work-oriented for you I wonder if you if you weren't a bus driver if you had a white-collar job and you went into an office every day if you had been able to write the postcards
2: well the truth be known I, I I find this job a bit uh, monotonous, and I'm always looking for something to liven up the day. Uh, I've taken lately to memorizing passages out of the Bible uh, at red lights.
3: What book are you in right now?
2: (laughs) I chose the book of Job to start in.
3: (laughs) My dad didn't set out to be a bus driver. He wanted to be a professional violist, and he studied viola at Cal State LA for a while. Remember the violin playing character, Poindexter, from Revenge of the Nerds? That's exactly what my dad looked like, circa nineteen seventy six. Then he met my mom, she got pregnant, he needed a job. Bam, he's been driving a bus ever since. He doesn't hate his job. In fact he says it gives him time to sort things out in his head. But it's still boring.
2: The date is uh nine twenty two ninety nine. Mount Hoy Car number seven hundred sixty five, one PM dear Renee. Not all bus lines are created the same. For writing postcards at red lights. I was told by a passenger once that I was the busiest bus driver she ever saw besides driving a bus. I guess that speaks to my boredom. Love and prayers, dad.
3: So yeah, the postcards are sweet, and I love them, but the bottom line is that he probably never would have written them if he hadn't have been a bus driver. It took two factors to produce the thousand cards, love and boredom. He wrote the last card in May of 2000, The day he and my stepmom and brothers boarded the train to come see me graduate.
2: May 12th, 2008 PM. Mount Holyoke card number 1000. Dear Renee, I'll never write you again. Just kidding. I'm glad I did this, but I'm equally glad it's over. You'll always be in my prayers. I'm looking forward to seeing you graduate. See you soon. Love and prayers, Dad.
3: I miss getting the postcards, but I wouldn't want my dad to still write me one a day. They had a time and a place. Besides, I have two brothers who will be college-age soon. My 1,000 postcards fill up three plastic grocery store bags. I don't really ever go back through them and reread them or anything, but I'll definitely never throw them out. They're a monument of my dad's love and proof that cool things can come out of a dull job. For B-Side, I'm Renee Gattel.
2: Euclid transfer to the 37. Fountain Valley to beautiful Mahabra.
3: I'm broke, but I'm not poor. Bus driver, you're gonna get me to where I'm going. Bus driver is gonna get me to where I'm
1: going. On my way... This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith. And my dad is looking for his ball again. I'm playing golf right now with my dad and my husband and my husband's father. And it's not going so well. (laughs) We're now on the third hole, and I think combined we've probably taken about 700 shots. Um, It turns out we're just not very good at golf, but I don't think that's what this event is all about. I think it's about hanging out with our dads, which is also what this edition of B-Side is all about.
4: Tamara has her steel blue field driving club approaching her pink ball. She hit it straight.
1: Straight about 15 feet. Now dad's up. There you go. Uh, Still getting too much ground in it. Alright, our next story is about me and dad, so um, I thought I'd have dad do the intro.
4: Being a father isn't always the easiest job in the world, and sometimes you have to leave a little mystery in the stories that you tell your children. And that's what this story is all about.
1: When I was a little girl, three or four, my dad was artistic director for a theater company in Hollywood. The actors and crew were all veterans, including my dad. They did plays about war. Over there. Fast forward 20 years. My dad is a high school principal. My little brother Donovan is in college preparing to audition for his first play, and he needs a monologue.
0: I I figured, hey, dad would probably know where some good monologues are. So uh, I emailed him, and uh, I said, hey, dad, could you please recommend a good monologue for me? I got an email back from him, and he told me that he had something in storage uh, from a play that he thought would just be perfect for me.
1: The next day, Donovan gets an email from Dad with a script for a monologue from a play called Viet Damned. It's a dramatic battlefield scene with a soldier raging as his friend is clearly dying in front of him.
0: I'm not going to leave you here. You're going to make it. We are going back together. Just shut up. I am not leaving you here alone. This place is crawling with gooks. You're not going to die. You you can't die. You can't go without me. It's not fair. We had plans. People had heard of it. I I ran into a couple of people and they're like, "Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh Yeah, I've heard of Viet Damned. I I think uh, I read something from that once. Cool. Like, maybe I really found a good play.
1: A couple of days later, Donovan gets another email from Dad. Congratulations on getting a part in the play. Glad you liked the monologue. By the way, I wrote it. So once you realized that Dad had written it, did you think back and go... Okay, what was Dad thinking? Like, what, what made Dad write this piece?
0: I really have no idea.
1: The fact is that we know virtually nothing about Dad's Vietnam experience.
0: Well, we know some stories, but we very, know very little. Uh, and the stories are all about his days in boot camp uh, and how he worked the system. ...while he was in uh, the, the, the Navy, but we don't really know what happened after boot camp and uh, before he came home. It's kind of a big black hole.
1: Here's what we do know. Dad was about to be drafted, so he enlisted in the Navy. In 1969 and 70, he served in Vietnam. He was a Navy photojournalist and says he was shuttled into all the hotspots to take pictures... He probably witnessed a lot, but we don't know what he saw, what he experienced, or how he felt about any of it. He just doesn't talk about it. Instead, when my brother and I were growing up, he exposed us to Vietnam through fiction. Even when we were way too young to be watching R-rated movies, Dad had us watch films about the war.
0: How well, had everybody's head about the bed. Bird. It's all we ever see, really, is, like, once a year on, like, uh, Veterans Day. Dad pulls out all the Vietnam films. And then he'll get into analysis of, like, various actors while we're watching. So we don't quite know why we're watching, whether or not it's, like, some part of his lived experience that he wants us to uh, understand. Or whether it's his uh, trying to remember his friends that died in the war. Or any number of things, really.
1: Yeah, we don't know... There's just a lot of stuff that we don't know, and so there's these films, and then this monologue comes along, and I'm trying to figure out what it means.
0: What did Dan go through? Hey,
5: the cameras. This is Vietnam, the movie. Yeah, Joker can be John Wayne. I'll be a horse. D.H. Rock can be a rock. I'll be Aunt Margaret. Animal Mother can be a rabbit buffalo. I'll be General
6: Custer. Who'll be the Indian? Hey, we'll let the goose play the Indian. <laughs>
1: So I finally decide to ask Dad about his Vietnam experience and why he never talks to us about it. But when I sit him down with my microphone, the questions don't come out easily. Usually I feel like I have superpowers with this microphone. I can ask anyone anything. But with Dad on this topic, I'm awkward, shy, powerless. What? Why? Well, so all through our childhood, you've had us watching these films, Dear Hunter. Platoon, Apocalypse Now?
6: Well,
4: I don't know whether I thought that it would help you have a better idea of why your father was as different as he was, or whether it would just give you a sense of, of history. I mean, when I was growing up, uh, my dad never really talked about World War II. There were plenty of movies and so forth, but there was no real sense of of any kind of sharing, and I don't think I really shared too much to my kids, but... I did take them to the movies.
1: What we're trying to figure out is if you were trying to tell us anything by writing this.
4: Well, that, that I'm... <clears throat> That's a good question. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't writing it as a catharsis. I kind of did that whole piece when I went to uh, the dedication of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial 20 years ago or so.
1: Why don't you tell your kids what your experience was.
4: I don't think my kids ever asked.
1: I don't think we were encouraged to.
4: Who discouraged you? You. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know.
1: The more we talked, the more Dad avoided my questions. And the more I wanted to shut off my recorder and never bug him about Vietnam again. So maybe those movies he showed us every Veterans Day were really just good movies. And maybe Viet Damned is totally fabricated. And even if these things do reflect my dad's experience in Vietnam, I'm not sure I need to know how much of it is real. To the fourth hole? Uh, that was like No, no That was seriously just the third hole <laughs> We are going to be here for the rest of our natural lives That's fun right here Alright Our next story is about um, dads and how dads are always telling jokes and how that sort of embarrasses their children. So, dads get over here. Um, what give me your uh, your best your best joke. This is my dad. Yeah, <laughs> come on, come up with something. Yeah, we we you don't, don't
4: we don't tell jokes, we make fun of our children in public. There's a difference. That's right. Jokes have a beginning, a middle and a punchline. Our children are just one punchline waiting to happen after another.
1: Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. (laughs) You have anything for me, Bob? (laughs) Yeah, that was the that was no. (laughs) So um, our next story comes from David Johns and his dad, his dad would have a joke for this moment. His dad has a joke for every moment. So
6: a horse walks into a bar, right? Bartender says, hey, mister, why the long face? I know. You've heard that one before, but I think it's funny. Horses do have long faces, and what was that horse doing in a bar in the first place? Okay, but seriously, have you heard the one about the guy who goes to the doctor complaining about silent gas? And the doctor said, well, tell me
5: about it. Uh, does this happen often? or what? Oh, well, he says it happens uh, frequently. He said, uh, well, how frequently? Well... Like, on, on the way over here this morning, coming to the doctor's uh, your office, uh was riding the bus. It,
6: I had silent gas uh, a couple of times. You know this one? It's one of my dad's favorites. My dad has a lot of favorites. And uh, then
5: once I got here, I had silent gas coming up on the elevator and uh, out in the waiting room uh, once or twice. And, uh, you know, I don't know what
6: what the story is on that or what to be done about it. Truth is, nothing can be done about it. You're trapped inside one of my dad's jokes, a sort of cul-de-sac in the space-time continuum. There's only one way out. That's the punchline. And it'll come eventually. You just have to wait, for better or worse. And uh, the doctor said, well,
5: uh, the first thing we're going to do is uh, get your hearing checked.
6: My dad learned most of his jokes from a guy named Scotty he knew from work. It was the early seventies, and they were both computer programmers working in air-conditioned rooms packed with mainframes that ran on vacuum tubes. Very often, somebody would say, "Hey,
5: Scotty, you heard any good new jokes?" You know, and and he always would. And uh, at first, I just enjoyed them, but then later on, I uh, realized that uh, you know I, I'm not one
6: to remember jokes, so I decided that I would uh, make a few notes. It was the birth of my dad's joke journal a black composition notebook where he'd keep track of jokes or stories he wanted to remember. Of course, this had an effect on his family, his captive audience around the dinner table. One joke in particular gained a certain notoriety, the meep joke.
5: I mean, to me, it just seems, it strikes me as the funniest of the, the joke that I know, but I found that it generally falls flat on other ears, and uh, that's about, these two fellows over in uh, England who are digging a ditch. And uh, this cat wanders by and uh, walks on the side of the ditch there and rubs up against one of the ditch diggers. And uh, he pets him a little bit, and uh, the cat says, Meep? And uh, he pets him again, and the cat says, Meep? And... uh, the ditch digger says to his buddy says did you hear what that cat said meep i've never known a cat that that said anything but meow
6: and you're like okay seems funny a cat that says meep weird you know could be funny uh you want you wonder where it's going and and there you are you're trapped inside the joke in suspended animation and all you can do is wait for deliverance
5: and it was about time for a break anyway so they they knocked off, and they went into the pub across the way. And one uh, i them happened to think uh, the
6: barmaid might have uh, a dictionary. Now, if you're like me, here's where you start to get nervous. Because there's nothing funny about dictionaries, at least not since second grade when you first checked out what Webster's has to say about the word fart. But that's a whole different thing. What I'm saying is when a dictionary appears in a joke, it's a red flag. And, and sure enough, a dictionary was produced and uh, he
5: was going to look up uh, MEEP. And the other says, no, it's not going to be in there. So he looked up there and he, how you spell it? Well, M-E-E-P, I guess. And here it is. What does it say? It says,
6: see, meow. I remember one time after telling a friend one of my dad's jokes over dinner, he was like, You owe me five minutes of my life, which kind of pissed me off. It's one thing for me to make fun of my dad's jokes, but it's a whole other thing coming from somebody else. I mean, I'm quite sure that fathers have been subjecting their children to bad jokes since the dawn of time. My dad is simply carrying on that grand tradition. Which reminds me of another, this is a Scotty joke. This is about
5: Billy Joe Smith from Beaumont, Texas. Have I told you this one before?
6: As I've gotten older, I've actually come to really admire my dad's skill in the art form. Because as a storyteller, he has a wonderful dramatic touch. I mean, sure, sometimes the punchline leaves a little bit to be desired. But the narrative, he he really nails it. Which you might say makes it all the more insidious when the joke turns out to be a lemon. But maybe that's really not the most important point. Another one would be, this fellow's
5: up at uh, the pearly gates. And he's checking in with St.
6: Peter, and St. Peter... In a way, my dad's jokes invert the reigning paradigm in the narrative joke. In the normal social contract with the joke teller, the listener agrees to sit through the narrative with the expectation that the punchline will be worth the wait. My dad's jokes don't work that way. They're revolutionary. They demand a new way of listening. As an audience member, you've got to learn to bask in the story as it unfolds. It's about the journey and not the destination.
5: Another one was the, uh, <clears throat> uh, the circus
6: train that got derailed somewhere down in Tennessee. All the animals got loose. When I it's was really out. little, sometimes after Little League games, my dad would take uh, my brother and me for a ride in the car. Right we'd ask him where we were going, and he'd say we were just following his nose. You know, his nose, like the thing that's sticking out of the front of his head. <laughs> but where was his nose taking us, we'd ask him. Knew, Only the nose knows, he'd say. Uh, and that, yeah, pretty much drove us crazy.
5: Up. Oh, now here's one. This is <clears throat> Frank Purdue was you know, the the chicken man, and he was quite influential. And uh, he
6: managed to get an, an audience with the Pope one day. And so he. I think maybe that's that's kind of the big trick. A nice, Once you get to be the dad, it's kind of your show, yeah. you know, and your kids, when getting ready, they're coming long. along for the ride, and sometimes it might make yeah. them crazy because. They don't know where they're going, and they don't really have any say in the matter. But as it turns out, it's kind of more fun that way. It. We'll put it to good use. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good joke.
0: That's a good one.
5: That was a Scotty, that was a Scotty joke. I like
0: that.
5: That's Frank Purdue. Mm-hmm. When is dinner going to be ready? <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: That story was produced by David Johns. I'm Tamara Keith, and this is B-Side. And all through today's show, we've been playing golf. It turns out this game of golf with my dad and father-in-law and husband has taken about six hours, <laughs> and we didn't stop for lunch. We just um, are apparently not good at golf. But that's okay, because we had a good time. And uh, Dad is now tallying up our scores.
4: Okay, Uh we, Tamara, we'll start with Tamara, total 132. Uh, I went from a 63 to a 59 on the second round, 122. Let's see, Bob had a 63 and a 65, and then Ira, 128.
6: Very good.
1: That's all for this edition of B-Side. Thanks for listening. I'm Tamara Keith. We also had production help from Erica Kelly and Renee Gatell and Marie Matheson. If you want to learn more about B-Side and our crew, please check out our website. That's org. The letter B S I D E radio.org. Yeah, right from the start They break your heart in the end Every kid wants his mother